0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside David Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. It's been a very difficult week, Dave.
1: Yeah, sad on, on many fronts. Not happy to wake up each day and and see the Previous night's devastation. It's uh, it's even tougher when you teach these things: politics, philosophy, civics, etc. Because so much of what you're trying to do as a teacher is uh, to teach young men and women how we can live within a political community, um, even though we're different from one another, uh, we can have different opinions uh, and not necessarily agree all the time, but uh, learn how uh, to deliberate and to go back and forth and to freely exchange ideas and. Uh, to vote and and to do things where sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. But at the end of the day, uh, we don't turn to violence uh, and we don't turn uh, to wanting to hurt one another or overcome uh, each other. And that's a a horrible thing to see when you see pictures of that uh, in the midst of uh, rightful protests.
0: Yeah, of course, one of the things that's I think central to our teaching as we particularly teach on the American regime is, is the principle of human equality. I mean, this is really the heart, the moral heart of the American regime. And when you give that up, and you give that up in particular for a principle that might makes right, which is really the alternative principle that we see exhibited in police brutality and looters, in the violent response to violence and, and the back and forth that we get as as this goes, day by day, uh, we see there's just really ultimately no hope in that for justice. And if we want to have a clear view of the direction that we want to take things, we have to figure out the pathway back to justice, beginning with the first principle of justice. As the American regime sets it forth most famously in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. So as we work through this today, you know, one of the reasons that I I stopped watching local news uh, was the absurdity of the theater that surrounds it. So, you know, you start with a story about a tornado that wipes out several houses and businesses, and then the anchor turns to the sports reporter and says something like, speaking of natural disasters, Bill, whatever happened to the Yankees last night? And it's just so incongruous, right? You got this human tragedy on the one hand. And then now we're talking about how the Yankees blew a three-run lead in the ninth inning or something like that. So if you've listened to our first two episodes, you know we're trying to mix serious reflection on political ideas with some more lighthearted personal stories and commentary on sports and culture. Uh, But we don't want to be like my imaginary news broadcast this week, so we're going to tread lightly on the humor while we focus on the problems of race, police misconduct, law and order, that are so plainly in sight in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and the protests and riots that have followed. So let's start with some headlines. And we begin, at least at the beginning of this story, with the brutal killing of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin during an arrest that involved three other police officers um, on May 25th. So four days later, Chauvin was originally charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter. And then this week, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, uh, a name you may remember as a former Democratic congressman from Minnesota, amended the complaint against Chauvin to add a charge of second-degree murder and filed separate charges against the other three officers. And so as we all know, since Floyd's death, there's been both peaceful protests and uh, non-peaceful protests amid multifaceted calls for change, uh, from specific reforms regarding policing techniques and police accountability, to general calls to repudiate racism and white supremacy, to what can only be described as revolutionary and even uh, nihilistic demands. So we're going to take a look at this in in these three different dimensions and try to sort through it a little bit from the headlines and then. Take that step back, that's really central to this program, and think about where we can get some historical and philosophical perspective on this. We'll begin by looking at the issue of the abuse of police power. So, Raphael Manguel, writing at the City Journal, tries to understand this significance of the incidence of death uh, by the hands of police officers, particularly shootings. Uh, In recent years, there's been about a thousand. Deaths per year, Um, and that's out of a total number of arrests of 10 million. About 10 million arrests each year, about 1,000 of those uh, annually have led to the death of the person being arrested. Um, Perhaps more relevant for the particular case is the number of incidents where the person was unarmed, which has fluctuated in recent years. Uh, Last year, there were 28. Unarmed individuals who were killed in the process of arrest. In 2015, the number was 70. Now, for a little more historical perspective, 1971, New York City police discharged their firearms 810 times, wounding 221 individuals and killing 93. In 2016, that was 72 times, about one tenth the number, wounding 23. And killing nine. So in New York City, there's been a rather substantial reduction in incidents of violence between the police and those that they are seeking to arrest. So, with that context, then there's a real fascinating article in The Atlantic that lays out uh, 13 different ways that. Uh, could actually move forward in improving policing in the United States. Three, um, social scientists that propose these at the federal level, the state level, and the local level. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. One, they suggest the federal level is uh, an increase in data collection. So there's a surprising lack of information with regard to the use of violence. At the state level, they particularly see the value of updating laws on the use of deadly and non-deadly force. There's some states that have done that in recent years and made some significant progress in reducing incidents of death and violence between police and civilians and amending laws that govern collective bargaining to promote personal accountability and responsibility on the part of police officers. Uh, the last thing they mentioned for the states is to take steps against overcriminalization. And I guess the thing that jumped out at me in those numbers, Dave, is, is that there were 10 million arrests in 2018. And so while the number of deaths per arrest is obviously a, a small percentage, the fact that there were 10 million arrests uh, suggests either we have Lots and lots of crime and a very serious crime problem, or that perhaps things that don't need to be crimes are leading to arrests.
1: Yeah, I, I find that that number also uh, incredibly high. If you were to ask me you know, how many people are arrested in the United States each year, I would have probably given you a number that fell under 1 million. So the fact that it's 10 times that number, and that's a lot of, um, the wrong type of relationship between uh, civil society and law officers who are um, hired to serve and protect,
0: yeah, so I mean, in our town, when we see the police we we see them driving around, and we see occasional traffic stops and things of that sort, and there aren 't more serious incidents than that but but we also see them at the Christmas parade with all their squad cars decked out and we see them at the town fair day where they open up uh, the, the car and you can climb through and right. So you have those kind of positive interactions in the community that, that build trust and, and create a sense of a common purpose in maintaining the peace and the order of that community. And, and so obviously they have their job to do enforcing the law and, and no doubt that's happening, but, but there's other interactions, right? That are, that are common interactions for citizens and, and therefore the overall narrative is different than it would be if, if we constantly saw them only enforcing laws and, and you know, every, every interaction, whether it was, with you and the police, or, or a neighbor and the police, was a matter of confrontation, right? With heightened um, passions on, on
1: at least one side, perhaps both. Well, I go back to, to where you began in your opening monologue that uh, a relationship between uh, the law enforcement officer and the citizenry that is based on the precept that all men are created equal, uh, that you lead, you serve another as you would want to be led and served. Uh, you enforce laws as you'd want them to be enforced against you. That's an all men are created equal way of doing law enforcement. Uh, there's a might makes right a way of doing law enforcement as well. And I just your, your story kind of brings to mind why we moved uh, to Canyon Lake in Texas, uh, which is right near New Braunfels, uh, Como County, I remember going, uh, the first time we were here a couple of years ago, visiting the area, we went to a famous place called Green Hall, uh, where they have music, and and uh, people dance, and they uh, drink Scheinerbach, and, and all the rest, and, and the whole town is is filled with the joy of just having a, a great day on a weekend, uh, and and enjoying it with your family, and I remember the sheriff, um, I believe it was the sheriff, he was a police officer, but he could have been the sheriff of the county. He was directing traffic outside of the hall and, and joking with people as they were walking by, uh, reprimanding uh, cars that wouldn't stop, et etc. But just doing so in a very uh, funny manner. And then he went in uh, as the band was finishing its set for the day uh, and uh, performed with the band uh, on its last song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then said to the assembled crowd of, of 400 uh, all right, guys, take a break now. Have a coffee. Um, I don't want to pull you over. I want you to get <laughs> home safely and and start your week off right. And I just said to myself, boy, this is this is w- what America should be. And it was just a a really kind of great service that that this sheriff had performed. And this this was a black sheriff um, of a, a predominantly white county. And everyone knew him uh, and loved him, and 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 um, it's it, that's the direct opposite of what we see in some communities where uh, there is no communion uh, between these two groups. So um, I know we're looking for a pathway forward, and you know we're not going to be able to do that in a forty-minute podcast. But I think there's some light there that that's, it's not just simply in in uh, New Braunfels Green or. Uh, or suffer and it, it's it's there uh, there are a lot of great uh, police officers and and there are a lot of great citizens working with police officers so there's a lot of good going on we don't hear much about that good uh, but i think that's the pathway forward uh, for our country
0: yeah there's a lot of stories of of progress in terms of community policing and things of that sort, even in neighborhoods of large cities and other places where it may feel like you don't have that same human scale kind of interaction. But from our time in New York City, what was striking to us was, was in some ways, how small a town in a way you lived in. Uh, we, 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 most of our life was about a 10 minute walk one way or another. And so there was even there, even though it's buildings and cement and all the rest. There's not a lot of trees, but, but there was, there could be a sense of, of community Um, and had to work at it. It was going to look different than it would in, in a small suburban town or some other part of the country, but, but it wasn't impossible. And so that, I think that sense of community and, and also the sense of people invested in that community. And of course that too can be a challenge in places where people are more transient, but, but to be invested in that community, boy, it makes a difference, and it makes a difference on both sides, right? The people that you see day by day, year after year, uh, builds trust and opportunities for de-escalating when when things get tense that are difficult, perhaps, to find otherwise. So we're going to kind of pull back one more step here, and um, obviously the the broader context of this killing, um, because it was a white police officer and a black victim, was the overall question of race in America. Uh, but just a couple of pieces that that caught my eye that kind of show maybe the range of the debate on this as we, as we work forward. So first this is uh, Ibram Kendi in The Atlantic. This, this piece is entitled The American Nightmare um, and it's playing on the idea of the American dream and contrasting that with the American nightmare. Uh, And he says, perhaps the worst of the nightmare is knowing that racist Americans will never end it. Anti-racism is on you, meaning the black community, and only you. Racist Americans deny your nightmare, deny their racism, claim you have a dream like a king, when even his dream in 1967 turned into a nightmare. And he links to an article, an interview that Martin Luther King did in 1967, where he said his dream had turned into a nightmare, has sort of some second thoughts on the optimism of his famous 1963, I Have a Dream speech. Now on the other side of that, uh, Andrew McCarthy um, writing on the issue of institutional racism, particularly in the context of policing. So he's a former federal prosecutor and makes a broader comment at the conclusion of his piece. He says, the African American community is not a monolith. Like other segments of the American population is diverse and dynamic. The policies pushed by progressives damage the parts of it that need the most help. And the false narrative of racist police, which pressures law enforcement to back off from the communities most victimized by crime, is now destroying entire cities. Broadly competing narratives here. And and of course, this folds into a debate that's been going on since last year when the New York Times published its 1619 project uh, is the American project fundamentally a racist project, 1619, the date that the first slaves arrived in Virginia? Or is the real story of the United States, ni- 1776? And uh, we've quoted the Declaration of Independence already, um, which is the dominant narrative, which is the one that that gives us best access into the meaning of the American experience. That's, that's sort of the longer view question. And then the question of where we are today and how we can move forward
1: on this question of, of sixteen nineteen versus seventeen seventy six. Going back, some to something I said earlier. We're always trying to make right the total case that that okay, what well can complete uh, we can prove completely uh, that X is the case. And I think that's a very very um, incorrect thing to do, especially when you're taking on uh, this subject that 's as touchy as, as this, you and I both teach American civilization and, and culture. Uh, we teach you know what 's happened over the last four hundred years, but, but we do so, I think hopefully uh, in a humble way. Uh, you Try as much as possible to get a sense as to what happened and to why it happened, and a lot of what happened and, and or maybe not all of what happened and, and why it happened boils down to uh, decisions that human beings made given their circumstances. And there are macro political or historical decisions that political communities make uh, to go to war against the British, say, uh, in 1776, uh, to go to war uh, against uh, Germany and the Axis powers uh, prior to World War II. But there are a lot of micro political decisions or historical decisions that are made by individual human beings. And you see the complexity of human life and human history when you take into account what's happening at the macro political or macro historical level and at the micro political or micro historical level. You think about how many millions, hundreds of millions of Americans have made decisions over the course of the last 400 years. Right now our population is some 340 million Americans. My guess is, it's just a guess, you're probably talking about the decisions made by 800, 900, 1 billion Americans. And each of us, we know this from our individual lives, there are some decisions that we regret. There's some choices that we've made that are bad, other choices that are good, but that there's complexity in our individual lives. So to say systemic X or systemic Y is to try to imprint upon a very complex human story or human experience, a, a statement or a precept. And I think that when you do that, um, you really lead people astray.
0: One of the interesting parts of this, which uh, we're gonna come back around to um, Abraham Lincoln in the next segment, but you know, for, for Lincoln, 16, 19, and 1776 are both important. So the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, right, right back to 1776. But in the second inaugural address, he says it's 250 years of unrequited toil. And 250 years from 1865, takes you all the way back into the early 1600s. So there's, this is the complexity of the American story, right? 250 years of injustice, 250 years of unrequited toil of slaves, up to 1865 and of course injustices layered on top of that in the years since uh, but also a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal and it's holding those two ideas together and somehow figuring out how they move forward how how a nation moves forward in light of the history and the aspiration i think that's going to be a big theme of where we're going to go in the next segment as well. So the last piece of this is is the response, and so the the rallies, the riots, the the calls for revolution, different layers of all this. Uh, we've seen former President Obama putting out a statement as well, decrying violence, uh, arguing in favor of of first rallying. And protesting, other than moving toward political action, and particularly responding to those that argue that that political action can't help, um, and and directing people, especially toward local offices. So, trying to encourage people to get involved in local politics, where so many of the key decisions regarding policing and law enforcement, all the rest, are made. So we have that on the one hand, but on the other hand, we had a number of uh, individuals who are giving defenses of of violent protests. Uh, So a piece by Wellesley professor Kelly Carter Jackson, entitled Riots are the American Way. And she concludes the piece, a riot may be temporary violence, quick and dirty, but it could become a revolution. And though slow and long lasting when it is fully mature, a revolution is irrefutable change. So, one of the things that we're, we're wrestling with is, is how violence fits into all of this. And again, we've got these competing perspectives on that. The last piece I'll mention briefly is Yuval Levin writing at National Review. He goes back to another speech by Abraham Lincoln, one of his earliest speeches, where he warns of the danger of reacting with lawlessness to perceived injustices. And although the, off, the the common concern that arises in that context is a concern that individuals will kind of get swept up in it all. And, and so the, the innocent will be punished alongside with the guilty, right? The problem with vigilantism is that vigilante mobs are not very good at discerning who's actually guilty. They're, there's no opportunity for judgment. There's no opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. It's, it's not rough justice, it's just injustice. That's the typical concern, but, but as, as Levin points out, uh, Lincoln's concerned with that, but he's even more fundamentally concerned with the fact that once, once lawlessness sets in, going back to the point we've been making earlier, once lawlessness sets in, it becomes very difficult for anybody to remain attached to the regime itself. That if, if we can't expect basic safety, if, if we find ourselves uh, constantly endangered, then all, all the rest of, of life, all the good things we might otherwise do uh, become essentially impossible uh, because our only focus is, is on safety. And if you go back to the Declaration of Independence, it talks about safety and happiness. And Harry Jaffa talks about this as, as the alpha and omega of political life. Right? You begin with safety, but safety is is meant to then be the bridge toward happiness, the foundation upon which you pursue happiness. You have to have safety, but you don't end with safety. Right, Safety provides the context in which you pursue happiness. But of course, if you don't have safety, then there's no way to do that. And I think there's, there's a lot there for us to think about in terms of uh, violence as an as instrument of political power, whether that's the political power exercised by an immoral police officer or whether that's the political power exercised by a mob in the streets. Well, let's now turn our focus to our required reading and take a step back as, as we do each week and look at the historical context, the ideas that can help us to understand these, these very challenging and troubling events better. So, Dave, what are, you, what are you assigning this week?
1: Well, I have four things to assign. I'm sorry. It's more required uh, reading or viewing than, than regular weeks. And I'm sure this won't be the first time that uh, we, we take a stab at, at working through these issues. I, I don't think, unfortunately, these are going to go away anytime soon. Um, uh, there is nothing new under the sun. These problems aren't, aren't new. Uh, and I think there are a lot of historical and philosophical resources that we can turn to to try to make our way through them. The first thing I'd assign is, is for everyone to uh, go back and uh, take a look at Homer's Iliad and, and take a look at uh, the Shield of Achilles. Uh, the Shield of Achilles, of course, uh, tells uh, the picture of two cities. Uh, one, uh, a city of peace and happiness, as you just mentioned, uh, where there are weddings and, and there are legal cases, and, and a second city that's at war, uh, suffering uh, from faction, It's not that war is not sometimes uh, necessary. Uh, Sometimes you need war in order to achieve the peace uh, or uh, to achieve happiness, uh, to uh, be able to uh, protect yourself uh, against an enemy. But when war becomes an end in itself, uh, then a city crumbles. And the second piece I'd assign has to do with this modern tendency or postmodern tendency to want to seek war as an end in itself, uh, or more particularly to seek revolution as an end in itself. Um, And this reading is uh, Hannah Arendt's On Revolution. Arendt, of course, um, had uh, lived and and gave commentary on on a lot that had happened in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, She took a look at the violence of the 20th century and was interested in uh, what made a revolution good, uh, something that served mankind and served its happiness as opposed to revolutions that had uh, the opposite result. Uh, in most of the book, she uh, deals with the differences between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. But what I want to quote from is is a couple lines from the beginning or introduction to the book. Uh, she talks about revolution and war, and she does so within the context of violence as a, a political uh, phenomena. Uh, violence uh, is, is something uh, not to want to be embraced, but violence is the common denominator Uh, for both war and revolution. But there's type of violence in revolution that's particularly troubling. It's a violence that is forced upon another so that everything and everybody must fall silent. Uh, She says this is type of violence that you would see in a concentration camp of a totalitarian regime. This is a type of violence that you saw in the French Revolution. And it's this violence, uh, this desire for violence that is dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing because it takes away our very political being, and it seeks to take away our ability to employ our speech. Uh, What it takes away, Matt, is our ability to act uh, and to speak, which is the basis of our political life. All to say, human beings are made to speak and to act to use words uh, and to uh, go after things. To do this rightly is to move, to speak and to encourage happiness. But a violence that is angry at the current peace that seeks to silence or deactivate or inactivate a human being actually furthers the evil that is trying to overcome. And I think that we ought to be mindful of this as we approach uh, such topics as Antifa and approach uh, such uh, attempts made by some forces politically to silence human beings uh, or to uh, tell them that they ought not to act. And I think that um, if we go down this road where we allow that type of violence uh, to cut away at our speech or to cut away at our activity uh, then the chaos uh, that uh, is brought forward will not be a chaos unto a better peace and a better happiness uh, but a silence. If someone says to you, here's the solution to our political problem, I want you to shut up I want you to kneel down and I want you to apologize. Is that is that the resolution that we're looking for? Because if if that's the resolution that we're looking for, that is the very definition of totalitarianism.
0: Right. Well, we think about, I mean, just the most literal context of that, of course, George Floyd with a a knee on his neck saying, I can't breathe, right, until he couldn't speak, until he'd been killed. And then you have the response to that. And so, I mean, there seems like there's as you were saying earlier, right, there's not really any political acts that's gonna be easily ground with this because this requires then there be speech in response to the silencing of a man. Right? There, must be, there must be speech in response to George Floyd's death. But then again, that speech has to allow for dialogue. It has to allow for conversation, has to allow for reasoning toward some kind of progress toward justice. And if that speech is associated or or attended with those that would simply speak and then silence others, or simply stop speaking and start smashing and destroying, then then we lose any opportunity there as well to do that political thing, which Aristotle says human beings are are meant to do, right? To talk about justice.
1: So my third assignment, I'm sorry, I have so many assignments this week, but my third assignment would be for everyone then to read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail that is an argument. Uh, It's an argument against uh, a certain type of activity. It's an argument for a certain type of activity. Uh, he argues that he's in Birmingham because injustice is there. And the argument that was put forth by other pastors at the time, that he's just agitating, that he's making things worse, that he's rocking the boat, is not an argument uh, that uh, that King thinks is is the right argument uh, in this case. And, and he'll go on in this essay uh, to argue that there are certain laws, there are certain states where some things are considered just. And there has to be a rightful um, protest against those laws and against those wrong conceptions of justice. But in one of the key passages in the speech, he tells us, and I'll just read read from the speech, in any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. The collection of the facts to determine whether injustice exists. We talked about trying to collect more data on what's going on in our country negotiation dialogue you just mentioned that self purification kind of taking a, a look at one's own soul and one's own fallenness and then direct action and he says that we've gone through all of these steps in birmingham so i think that that is a an example right of the type of employment of word and deed uh, for a, uh, to overcome injustice and to create a happier society. And one of the essential things when you read through that letter is how much King references the first American revolutionaries and references this idea of natural justice, of natural law, of common precept that all men are created equal, uh, and that that common standard is what will lead us forward as a society and make us better.
0: It's a strikingly generous piece in that sense. Uh, He quotes Thomas Jefferson, uh, he lauds Thomas Jefferson in a certain sense, not, not as a slave owner, but as a man who said all men are great equal. And he lauds Abraham Lincoln, not as a man who admitted his own racial prejudices, but as a man who worked toward the end of slavery. Uh, And so there's a kind of generosity there that I think is is captured well in an earlier speech, The Power of Nonviolence, from 1957. Uh, He talks about the ultimate goal of nonviolent action being the creation of a beloved community. And begins a passage that ends with that statement by saying that we do not seek to humiliate or defeat the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. And, you know, that's, that's tough, right? And, and it might be that that was too much, right? That, that at certain points, maybe King came to the conclusion that was going to be too hard to do. But what he says just above that is that this method of non-violence is non-aggressive physically, but strongly aggressive spiritually. And I think this is what really captures the essence of... King's approach or the power of his approach to pursuing justice is that he deals with human beings, not just as physical creatures. And this is, this is where violence acts, right? Violence tries to constrain the body, deals with people as, as animals in some, in some ultimate sense, but he appeals to the soul, uh, that which of course is denied its existence, even denied by many, but, but, but King, appeals to the conscience right that that nonviolence in response to violence is difficult to deal with right when somebody when 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 you hit somebody and instead of hitting you back they 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 turn the other cheek right figuratively or literally you don't know what to do with that and in the moment maybe you take advantage of that maybe right? maybe you act but but there's there's the possibility of a conscience being pricked by that in a way that a response that's violence with violence doesn't allow for. We, we get that, right? When, when you hit somebody uh, and they hit you back, there's nothing that has to be explained there. We understand how that works. But, but the argument that it can be spiritually aggressive to be nonviolent because you're appealing to that more essential part of the human being, the conscience, that which is beyond the mere physical is is something that that provides the foundation for the emergence of a community bound together by by love, uh, even if that can't be achieved
1: full sense uh, this side of Christ's kingdom. Well, you you've just described the cross, uh, which is the the ultimate act uh, of, of of that that love and um, and God's love uh, for us uh, and that reconciliation that true uh, and the only true reconciliation uh, that can come uh, between uh, all of those things that divide us as human beings, but more appropriately divide us from God himself. It produces, I think, um, likewise within you a sense of humility uh, before the judgment of God. And um, you see this humility in Lincoln, and you see it uh, in in Lincoln's second inaugural. Um, he notes full well, right, that um, uh, you know, God has His plan uh, for mankind, and and we try to do our best uh, in this world uh, to try to figure out what the right is. But at the end of the day, that He 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 will judge uh, the world and judge our actions, and, and that hopefully that will uh, produce within us a right ordering of our our soul. So uh, more to be said on that, but I, I think that hopefully we've begun to touch upon uh, some of the ways of thinking about this issue drawing back uh, and seeing it as a human uh, problem uh, among a, a much more complex assessment of the human condition.
0: So as we begin to, to wrap things up uh, for our second to last segment where we open the gradebook, we're going to focus on political leaders and, and their response to the events of this week and kind of talk through how their response interacts with the principles we have just been describing. Uh, how how have they acted in light of the guidance of of a king, of of a Lincoln, uh, a rent and um, Homer? So how about let's start with President Trump? Um, what do you make of President Trump's role in all of this?
1: I think he had a terrible week. I th- I think that um, if he could uh, get this week back, uh, he probably could. Um, I don't know what he'd grade himself, but uh, it'd have to be something close close to an F. And I say that um, not from a, a never Trump voice. I'm not a never Trumper at, at all. And I think a lot of what President Trump has done, uh, albeit uh, sometimes uh, you know, without civility, uh, to take on uh, political correctness and to take on uh, the desire among some uh, to silence a, a large majority of Americans is quite heroic. But um, you don't see uh, the language employed by Lincoln in the second inaugural. You don't see uh, kind of an understanding of, yes, it, it's very important uh, for a leader uh, to secure the peace through law and order. Uh, but that leader also within our democratic republic has to be one who is encouraging uh, liberty, uh, who is also uh, encouraging um, a sense of justice and 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 balancing uh, this deference paid to justice, deference paid to peace, deference paid to law and order, and deference paid to liberty—it's an incredibly difficult task, especially when you're hated. But um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think he had a good week at all, Matt.
0: I agree, Dave. A very difficult week for President Trump. He seems to be at his best um, when he is able to counterpunch when he's in the ring politically and he's able to define some enemies to attack. And this was not a week for that. This was a week for a unifying voice. This was a week where even even the message of law and order, which was obviously a a necessary part of, of the message, but to emphasize that in the way that he did really, I think at the expense of Competing considerations of justice, and just the the kind of the language and demeanor that goes along with it. Right? He seems to have this this need to show himself to be tough, and sometimes uh, that really doesn't suit the occasion. And again, I think this was one of those situations where it just it just uh, made things worse. Um, there, there's so much that is has happened that that's already made his relationship with the media and the left and large parts of the population, so, so difficult. There, there may be no way at this stage to, to be everybody's president in a sense that people can easily applaud. But I think there's still the obligation to make that effort. As much as depends upon you, uh, be at peace with all men. And I don't think we saw that From President Trump this week. Well, our last segment each week is what we call the Tocqueville's Crystal Ball, and we try to make a prediction for the week to come. Last week, we focused on the reopening of sports leagues. We were hoping that Major League Baseball, the NHL, and NBA would all have settled plans by this time this week, and we found that the NBA does. Major League Baseball seems to be not in a great place, a lot of tension between the owners and the players and the NHL. It's got a plan, but, but no date yet. So uh, this week, looking ahead and trying to think about, is there any silver lining in the very gray clouds that have been covering our country really for months at this point? We're going to try to make predictions for something that, that's going to go well. So our our focus this week is on what will go well next week, maybe surprisingly, maybe something that, that we could see is there's some indications on the horizon, but what are you predicting, Dave, that we can cheer and be thankful for next week?
1: Well, I don't know if it's my Texas bias being here, where we've kind of gone from phase one to phase two to phase three, and we may be at phase ten by now. Uh, I don't know, but we're we're pretty close to um, normal. I think my uh, my prediction, my hopeful prediction for the upcoming week is that um, there will be a reopening of the American way of life, and with that reopening, will come some encouragement. I think uh, getting out. And seeing people, uh, seeing loved ones, uh, friends, and, and all the rest uh, will, um, will move us toward uh, a, a better uh, societal uh, state of mind. Um, I think the problem, some, one of the problems or um, unintended consequences of social distancing is it tends to produce kind of an antisocial mindset. So hopefully that will be on the decline and uh, the, the type of happiness that we get in being with one another will be on the, the rise this week.
0: Yeah, it's a great observation. It really is tough to see people as as fully formed humans when all you've got is a connection across an email or across across the way uh, when you're not able to be together. I think we need that we need that kind of community. And there's just the kind of low level stress of of dealing with a life that we haven't chosen and that presents the challenges, the tensions, the worries that are that are always there, maybe in some parts of the country, more consistently than others. I'm going to make a prediction along similar lines and uh, project that contrary to fears and maybe some expectations, that there will be really no appreciable increase in incidence of COVID-19 in consequence of the protests and rallies of the last week. So I know there's a lot of people that are worried about that. And there's a lot of observations about people not respecting social distancing. We can talk about the political side of that, but that's not what I want to focus on here. I think there's going to be perhaps some good news that, ironically, perhaps that these protests have have allowed us to test the necessities for some of the outdoor social distancing that we've been told we need to follow, and that I'm predicting things will go better than expected and that will be an encouragement for us to be able to get out and, and maybe not always looking over our shoulder. Is there somebody coming down the, the sidewalk that I've got to dodge uh, and be just this far away as I go about my business? It'd be nice so, not to have to have that divided thought as you're out there enjoying the summer sun.
1: So Matt, I know you're not a medical doctor, but are you suggesting in your prediction that the, the six feet, rule six foot rule goes down to two feet or three feet or you don't want to get there. I am
0: not gonna go there in the least degree. I am not a doctor and I'm not gonna make any judgments about that. I'm just gonna be optimistic, right? That that God by God's grace, by consequences of outside airflow or whatever else, that that we're gonna be pleasantly surprised that we don't get a significant uptick In COVID-19 cases in some of the cities where we've seen large-scale protests and rallies. So we're grateful for you sticking with us to the end here. This has been a a challenging week and a challenging program, but we want to try to think through these things ourselves and, and provide some resources for others to do the same. We'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that through Apple. You can do that on Google. Spotify, as well as Stitcher. We're glad to hear from you, glad to get your feedback, and we look forward to being back with you again, Lord willing, next week.